Welcome to the Exalt Podcast. My name is Christopher Shagnon. And I'm Sophia Hagolani Elbov. We are here today with a very interesting guest, Tom Marafa from Youngstown State University in Ohio. I had the pleasure of getting acquainted with him at the American Association of Geographers annual meeting in, oh gosh, a few years ago now. It was in Chicago, which I guess would make it in 2015. So yeah, we're really excited to take a dive into looking at extractivism and sense of place from the perspective of small town Ohio. Yeah, I'm really excited for this conversation and and so glad to get to meet Tom because this is something that is actually, it's really, it hits me personally a lot, you know, coming from a a small town, although of course not from Ohio, from upstate New York, but being from a small town and and seeing a lot of these ideas of identity and how they play out. And it's such an inspiration for me of why even I'm doing this sort of thing to try to better bridge that gap and to better understand. So I'm really, really excited for this. I mean, he sent us some really great readings before this to to prepare a little bit, which were really fascinating. And yeah, I'm really excited to dive in. Which of course we will be adding to the show notes, dear listeners. And I think this is going to be interesting too, because I am also from a small town. However, I'm from a small town on the opposite side of the country. I come from coastal California, which even though it was a small town, is kind of a different set of identities and life situations, life experiences, lived experiences, if you will. So without further ado, Tom, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, wonders of technology. Here I am in Youngstown and there you are in Finland. So this, this should be fun. Yes, it's amazing what technology can do. Uh, Our times are a little bit different, but thankfully we were able to find a bit of overlap. Could you please tell our listeners a bit about yourself and contextualize a little bit the area of the country where you are from? Sure. I am a retired geography professor. I spent most of my career at uh, Youngstown State, received my degrees from uh, Ohio State uh, in uh, the last one in uh, 1980. My uh, interests in geography have been very wide-ranging from uh, transportation to economic geography. I've been very active in geographic education uh, throughout the years. Youngstown State's uh, department is a very small department, so we have to do a lot of different things. So uh, you become very broad, maybe a little sacrifice of depth, but I get to teach a variety of things and uh, have developed a variety of interests. Youngstown, uh, for people who don't know or aren't familiar, is in northeast Ohio. Uh, The metropolitan area is on the Pennsylvania border. That's about halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. So if you go uh, southeast from uh, Cleveland to Pittsburgh, Youngstown's kind of right in the middle, about an hour from each place. Its history is very closely tied to the steel industry and the uh, extractive activities uh, associated with the steel industry. And One of the uh, watersheds events in Youngstown's history was uh, an event called Black Monday, where um, several of the largest steel mills closed uh, within um, several weeks of each other, throwing uh, over 20,000 people out of work immediately, and uh, the economy is still recovering from that. When did that Black Monday happen? Uh, 1977, I believe. I could be off a year or two, but it's in the late 1970s. One of the things I've developed an interest in is the county immediately south of Youngstown, which is Columbiana County. And last fall, we had a senior seminar uh, for our geography majors, and uh, the students focused on Columbiana County. Columbiana County is closely tied to extractive activities. Uh, It has a history uh, with uh, strip mining, for example. It's 
predominantly rural county. Um, these cities, there are several cities, but none of them uh, larger than uh, 10 to 15,000 people currently. One of the larger cities in the county, East Liverpool, was once the largest pottery maker in the world and was home to the largest uh, ceramics company in the world at one time, Homer Laughlin. So it was closely tied to clay extraction and then uh, converting that into various forms of china and pottery and crockery and uh, all those kinds of things. You know, it uh, has also suffered a decline in that due to foreign competition and uh, other factors, there's virtually uh, very little of that pottery activity uh, still in uh, East Liverpool. The population fell from uh, 25,000 to uh, around 10,000 now in a 30 to 40 year period. And it's become the poster child for uh, a lot of the uh, social uh, issues uh, in this part of the state, such as the opioid epidemic. Another really interesting thing about Columbiana County is that uh, as coal mining has declined, it's been replaced by natural gas uh, and fracking activities and fracking related activities. So it's, it's undergone a transition from coal to, again, natural gas and related activities. So, so the whole county has kind of been a, I don't know if laboratory is the right word, but certainly a case study of places that have undergone change as uh, extractive activities have uh, evolved and changed uh, around it. What I'm hearing here is it sounds like it's a place that on its surface would seem as though it's a very local place, a rural place where local things are happening. Yet what I'm hearing is that there are really these big forces of globalization that are coming in and affecting what's going on on the ground in the place. That's exactly right. And uh, one of the transitions associated with that was that many of the companies that were foundational to this region and to Columbiana County uh, were local and grew out of the area, but then they were absorbed, purchased, you know, became part of these uh, international and national corporations. And then this place then just became a little chess piece in the locational strategies uh, of these companies. And, and for the most part, the place suffered as a result of that. And that's one of the reasons it's, it's had to uh, work so hard at trying to recover and find alternatives. Yeah, this is very fascinating to me. I mean, especially in how the economy sounds like it shifted because of this sort of globalization, because you normally think of classic sort of economic development theory stuff of going to more complex goods created, mm -hmm. but it seems like it's, it's regressed because it's one of those, of course, steel takes more work and refining than coal does. Almost feels like stepping backwards towards natural resources, almost like it was kind of pushed backwards. Into the fracking. Yeah, into fracking, yeah. And what's happened or what happened to uh, this area is that uh, as those industries evolved, to higher levels of technology, they evolved at other places and left behind Columbiana County and, and Youngstown. So uh, there's not as much, well, there is a fairly high-tech steel mini mill in Youngstown, but you know it employs a fraction of what the old traditional steel mills did. The new ceramics took place elsewhere. So East Liverpool, as their ceramics industry declined in the traditional ceramics products, it was not replaced in that place by the new uh, high-tech ceramics products. One of the interesting things that's going on in this region is that with the uh, natural gas uh, supply here, in between East Liverpool and Pittsburgh, they're building this massive, what's called a cracker plant. And what 
cracker technology does is break down the components of natural gas into its chemicals. And then those chemicals are, for example, used for uh, the manufacture of plastics, again, a higher tech uh, uh, byproducts. So, so the, the hope in this region is that with the natural gas supply and with the uh, development of uh, these technologies, that perhaps some of that will return to this area and you know, stimulate some economic development and help in the recovery of these areas. So from an outsider perspective, I know it's very easy to cast judgment on areas that are involved in these kind of very high technology types of extraction, like, for example, fracking. Mm -hmm. Um, But in Columbiana County, how are they viewed by the people on the ground? Well, for the most part, again, there's different groups of people. You have a group that largely, uh, in many ways, affiliated with the university, uh, that is very much opposed to fracking and has, uh, you know, introduced ballot initiatives to Youngstown, not to Columbiana County, to try to ban fracking, you know, within the city limits of Youngstown. So there's that group of people. Now you go to, in Columbiana County, though, and for the most part, uh, people see these activities as, beneficial to the community and beneficial to the county and hopefully in the long run addressing some of the problems that the county has uh, had to deal with in terms of outmigration of younger people in particular, uh, declining tax bases, the uh, blightedness of the uh, towns and cities in the county. And, uh, you know, they see economic development as a way to bring these places back and to restore them in some way to what they once were. So you mentioned that there are a lot of problems in these places and that there's been a lot of economic downturn and a lot of focus on trying to get these places rebuilt. But if these places aren't pleasant places to live, blighted and whatnot, why do you think people want to rebuild them? I think uh, one of the important characteristics of this part of the country and this part of uh, Ohio is the attachment that people have to their place. And there's a distinction between, for example, people who are placeless in their orientation. And they have uh, an orientation to career, to ideas. The idea of mobility as a way to advance is very much part of their value system. You know, many of these people went away to college, for example, and then they moved to another location in the first step of their career. And then their next step is to another location. So their sense of community is tied to work and people that they work with. And then that community moves with them as they move from place to place. So they're not really tied to a specific place. They're tied to things that are more placeless. Now, people uh, in Columbiana County are placed, you might say. Their families have lived in the county for multiple generations, perhaps. Their identity is very much tied to that place. They have a strong sense of community that's based on institutions that are in those places. It's as as fundamental as the local high school or church or the uh, Veterans of Foreign Wars, VFW group, you know, other types of uh, social clubs. And the town itself, I mean, uh, the town or community they live in, they have a great sense of pride in those places as, as home. And home is a very important concept for them. So 
while they may move and while their children may move, they, uh, many of them do not want to move and are many times are just content to live at the level that they can where they are because it's home. So they see attempts to make their home better and make their place better very positively. And they're very much you know, supportive of those types of activities. One of the statistics that really illustrates that is the percentage of people who in Ohio in general and in I'd say even more so in places like Columbiana County, who live in Ohio and were born there, or live in Columbia, were born in Columbiana County and still live there, is extremely high compared to, let's say, places like California or uh, you know the East Coast or places like that. So again, they're, they're very much rooted in where they're from and where they are. One of the things that really gets me with this, and I really want to get your take on, is there seems to be such a, a tension in this, this idea of home, but then you also have, as you said, like these kind of placeless people. And a lot of these people are the ones who are making the, the economic models, who are leading the economic policy, leading social policy in a lot of ways. And there's a definite tension there. So how, like, how does that play out? I mean, is there, is there a way to resolve it? Or? Well, I think uh, the, the question is, it is playing out. And... Uh... The, the idea that at one level, you know, the academic level, the economic policy level, the government level, globalization makes a lot of sense because it creates a more efficient allocation of resources, results in less expensive products, and that has benefits for the consumer. So you can, you know, certainly develop economic models in which that seems very rational. What those models did not account for is then as you're doing that places are left behind and so as the pottery industry for example uh, shifted to China and other places it left behind East Liverpool so what do you do with the East Liverpools of the world and many of them many of these policymakers would say well move you know, and uh, there was an urban uh, planner in Akron, uh, Jason Sagetti, who, uh, you know, used a phrase that he called it the U-Haul School of Public Policy, where the answer to all these problems is for people to pack up their things in U-Hauls and move to uh, other places where they can find better work. And, and again, that goes against the grain of a lot of these people who do not want to move. And so how do you solve the problems of these places as a result of these big forces like uh, globalization? And if you want to uh, bring it back to politics and how this is playing out, you know, that, that is what has contributed to the growth of populists, such as Donald Trump, because he spoke to these people in a way that they understood. You know, you don't have to sell your home. You don't have to move. We're going to make your place better. Now, as a demagogue, he uh, isn't able to deliver on those promises, but he certainly spoke to them. And that's in contrast to traditional political candidates who speak in terms of broad policies that are conceptual, but don't have a strong connection to the places where these people live and are experiencing uh, these issues. Yeah, I think that this is such an interesting thing to see because we see it playing out in so many places. I mean, we see it playing out in the UK a lot, in, in a lot of the Western world. Not just the Western world, even. I mean, I think some of the um, some of the specifics of situations are different in other parts of the world, but I think it's a very similar story. True. True. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And it's, it's quite interesting. I mean, you know, coming from a small town, I completely understand this idea of place. I mean, in many ways I am placeless, but I still have my high school football hoodie. I'm proud. Like I am, I'm proud of that. I take that with me everywhere in the world. I got my class ring. You know, I, I hang on to these things because they are important to me. And, you know, my hometown, it's, it's changed a lot. It's, it, it's benefited a lot from economic development. My hometown became a bedroom community and no longer a kind of failed paper mill town. Still, when I go back and visit, I would see people like, oh, it's so great that you're getting out there. And they're like, I could never do that. I wouldn't be happy doing that. And I would be like, oh, well, I appreciate that you're happy being here and you're making something out of this place because I know it's not really my place for the long term, but I'm always very proud of it. So I can see that in people. And it does amaze me still that there's not a greater recognition of that on, on a higher level and how much of a backlash this has caused. Yeah, it's, uh, again, it's interesting to see how this will play out in the next five or six months here, because in, in a lot of ways, that's the, uh, that's the fundamental tension, you know, between these two kinds of worldviews. And uh, so, I mean, we'll see which one prevails, I guess. Yeah, I think it's uh, difficult because it seems like a lot of the way capitalism is set up is it's set up toward this accumulation and set up slanted toward elites. And I feel like in this uh, discussion of like place-based and then placelessness, I think that the placelessness does tend to uh, lend itself to ability to accumulate capital because there isn't, um, not that being a place-based person automatically limits opportunity, but if you're rooted in one small place and you're not chasing or identifying, for example, like with career as maybe the most important driver, it could have the potential to limit some of those economic opportunities that somebody whose place-basedness is based on their career rather than their geographical situation in the world. Mm -hmm. The fracking economy in Columbiana County it is a form of capitalism. And one of the reasons people were so receptive to it in the county and tended to discount the environmental concerns was the different levels at which it benefited the county. And it was really a kind of a cascading effect on the county. At one level, many of the people in the county were large landowners from 10 acres, perhaps, to people who still had possession of their family farm. It may have been 150, 160 acres, but that farm was economically very marginal. Well, the natural gas companies come in and they buy the mineral rights associated with that property. And the people are willing sellers. So many of these people have a huge financial windfall by almost any standards. I mean, we're talking uh, you know, six figures sometimes, sometimes seven figure windfalls, depending upon uh, the amount of land they held and the rights. So what did they do? They did things that then rippled through the local economy. You know, they remodeled their house. They bought a nice pickup truck. You know, they spent the money locally. So you had that ripple effect. And then these natural gas companies come in and they construct the pipelines and the, the uh, well pads. And so that provides uh, not only jobs for locals, but it brings in an influx of construction workers. So that creates business for the restaurants, uh, new hotels are built, and all of that ripples through the economy. And then these facilities themselves employ people. They're not nearly as much as the construction activity, but there is employment generated by them, and that employment takes place in those places, and that ripples through the economy. And then the facilities themselves pay property taxes, 
and that supports the school systems in Ohio, which are entirely property tax based. So all of a sudden, the schools had nice new facilities that they weren't able to afford before. So all of that funnels into the place. So you have all these things going on, and then you add to that the potential of activities being drawn to these places because of what's there. People say, wow, you know, these are improving the place. And these other concerns just pale in comparison to what's happening in our place. And then they can even rationalize it environmentally because coal was very much a dirty resource. And coal-burning power plants are now being replaced by natural gas-fueled power plants. And that's a step up compared to what coal was, and particularly dirty coal in relation to uh, generating energy and generating electricity. So all of these things play out in a very specific way in these places, and that affects people's attitudes. So when uh, a presidential candidate like Bernie Sanders uh, you know, makes pronouncements like, first day I'm in office, I'm going to ban fracking, uh, how are these people going to react to that? Uh, and you have a, a key state like uh, West Pennsylvania, where this is very important in Western Pennsylvania and Ohio. As bad as an, the alternative may be, they see that and they see the effect on their place. And it's a decision they're going to have to make. And since they're placed, you're going to think they're, they're maybe going to just vote in the interests of their place. They aren't going to vote in the interest of concepts. Yeah, I think that it's a definite challenge to ask people who are very rooted in a particular place and seeing very vast improvements in that place, it's hard to ask them to still support these concepts when that literally will make their lives worse. And I mean, in the same measure, I would consider myself to be kind of a placeless person, which makes me feel a little sad when I say it that way. But for example, I'm able, I know intellectually that it is bad for me to fly places. I know that. I know that flying is terrible for the environment, yet it's easy for me. Well, maybe not easy. I have a lot of, I have a lot of uh, environmental anxiety over this, climate anxiety, if you will. But, you know, I can rationalize, well, I need to fly because I need to go to that conference or I need to participate in this course so I can learn more to save the world or whatever it is we're doing here. So I think that anything almost when you boil it down to the level of an individual, we all have a different focus, but we're all going through this process of rationalization all the time. And uh, I think one of the important things about the places like Columbiana County is that these local place-based issues are what drives their thinking and what drives their motivations. And when it comes to voting behavior, that's what's important to them. One of the interesting things that happened in East Liverpool, for example, was that uh, in the last mayor election, a young man who returned to East Liverpool ran for mayor as a write-in as a Republican and it was the first time a Republican had been elected mayor in East Liverpool in about 100 years, if I'm not mistaken. But the reason was he emphasized local. He emphasized what he was going to do for East Liverpool, how he was different from the status quo alternative, and he generated that kind of support. So, you know, the cliche that all politics is local, it really isn't a cliche, or it's a cliche because there's truth in it. And in places like Columbiana County that are tied to extractive activities that have evolved over the, over the decades, it's still very much a local concern. 
and uh, local interests and local values and taking care of home is what is the primary motivation for the way people think and ultimately vote. You know, I think it's really interesting. Like I'm hearing you're saying alternatives and we also talk a lot about alternatives, you know, the name of our initiative, Global Extractivisms and Alternatives. And what I'm picking up is that in Columbiana County, the alternative is the extractivism. The extractivism is providing alternatives for the place. Well, it's an alternative yeah. form of extractivism. It, the extractivism in Columbiana County has evolved to alternatives. Fracking is an alternative to coal, and natural gas-based economic activities are maybe an alternative to ceramics that uh, no longer exist. I think that this is a really important point to kind of bring out because I don't think we've really talked about this yet under the podcast of like, you know, we're here on the conceptual level being kind of attached to like this placeless academic conceptual theoretical discussion of extractivisms and alternatives, but sometimes at the actual base level on the commodity frontier, the extractivism is an alternative. And we spoke about this a little bit when we were talking with Aili Puhala yeah. about extractivism as an alternative on a very individual scale, like in indigenous communities, yeah. for example, who were engaging with extractivist practice on their terms mm -hmm. and that type of extractivism as an alternative. But in this case, this is treating extractivisms but still under the auspices of corporations. I mean, well, yeah, you're, I mean, I, I think it is, uh, yeah, it's trading one type of extractivism for another. And I mean, there's, there's also a lot that's bubbling through my head in so many different directions with this. I mean, in one way, like, you know, I was thinking of the conversation with Eileen as well. The idea that not necessarily all extractivism is the same Mm -hmm. Depends so much in like kind of the impact, but how much the local community can handle the impact and like how much they're willing to deal with the environment mm -hmm. uh, to an extent, but as well that they're not sending knock on effects too far downstream, but as well, like how that money is spent and invested because there are certain times and certain places where there really aren't that many other options. And, you know, I can completely see with all of this, you know, like, yeah, you know, natural gas, like it's it's a step up, can create so many different jobs and knock on positive effects, even with the potential negative environmental effects. You're, you're willing to make that trade. And as well, if you like stepped into government and say like, okay, you know, we're going to take this windfall and we're going to invest in, say, uh, wind farms. Or, or a school or in a school. the area. Yeah. Trade schools and stuff like that, different types of uh, infrastructure to build up the economy long term so that it could move away from polluting extractives or something. Is that really that terrible of a thing? I mean, like if I were living somewhere and somebody could sell a vision like that and really have a concrete plan for it, I, I could tell you, like, I would probably, uh, I'd probably be on board with that. Of course, as well, I mean, as an aside, I, well, I think of all the like horrible papers about how our global economy is just way too big already, but that's aside. <laughs> One of the things you talked about, they're building this billion dollar uh, natural gas power plant in Columbiana County, north of a small city, Wellsville. And it's going to take the coal powered power plant offline, replace it with natural gas in order to encourage, incentivize the natural gas company to build a power plant in this area. They gave him a, a tax abatement. 
property tax abatement, okay? That takes money away from the schools. But to compensate for that, the uh, natural gas company made a huge donation to the local school district that was used to put an artificial uh, surface, uh, playing surface on the football field, totally renovated the stadium, you know, made the football stadium a, uh, you know, a very attractive, uh, you know, community facility that can now be more widely used by the entire community because they don't have to worry about the grass being worn out. So someone like you who's proud of his high school, his high school football team, uh, would look at that and say, wow, this, I'd take this trade anytime because look at what it did for the community. So you have this power plant outside of town that's creating jobs. It's, uh, it's modifying the environment in its own way because of what they have to do to uh, make the power plant operate. But on the same, at the same time, it's creating a lot of uh, positive outcomes uh, for the community that, that in the eyes of the people who live there, make it a better place. And that's where their focus is. Is our place better? So we're in different places. We're in Helsinki right now. And here in Helsinki, there's been a lot of anxiety over protest about discussion of and declaration of the climate emergency. Is there any of that happening where you are at the moment in Ohio? It's at a very low level and a very very specific group of people. I have not heard or observed or seen any type of significant resistance to anything going on in Columbiana County by people who live there. In Youngstown and in the academic community of Youngstown, among uh, that group of people, there will occasionally be organized protests, but they tend to be very small. They get a lot of attention in the media, but in terms of widespread public support, it's not there. Again, uh, these these global issues like climate change aren't viewed as something that is of immediate concern to people or of much concern because their interests are focused on their local communities. And so it is a very different dynamic. People that are concerned about these global issues tend not to live in places like Columbiana County. That's, I guess that's the simplest way to say it. So the, the short answer to your question is no. There hasn't been much. And you know, I guess I realize even as I'm listening to the answer to that question, I have to remember that I myself am existing in an academic bubble. And I don't know if there would be the same level of anxiety and concern if I stepped outside of the university environment, even within my own city. I think the other thing about this part of the world is that when you start looking at what the impacts of this would be on this part of the world, they're not particularly dramatic, and people could even convince themselves that they might actually be good. You know, the winters are a little less uh, severe, summers may be a little warmer, farmers may have to make some adjustments in what they grow, the types of crops they emphasize, but not dramatic adjustments for a long period of time, so they could be easily easily made. And so we're, we're not talking about coastal environments where the, the potential of uh, you know, widespread flooding is you know, something on the radar. We're not talking about the West, where you know, the wildfires are certainly a, uh, a serious concern. Uh, we're not in a hurricane zone. Uh, so the extent that you can connect hurricanes and severity of tropical storms to climate change, that doesn't affect this area much. So 
again, if people look at their own lives, they don't see things that's, that they say, wow, I should really be concerned about this. So I think that also contributes to their thinking. I, I, I definitely understand that. I mean, that was always kind of the, the joke back home growing up was like, oh, yeah, you know, if the water rises, then we'll have, we'll have beachfront property. It's, it'll be worth a lot more. Uh, so, so there's no way it's going to hit us. We're up in the mountains. But I mean, overall, I mean, this is one of those things that does strike me because as I said, there is this part of me that like that I can I can really put myself in that place and understand where this comes from, despite there also being a very large part of me from being in this academic bubble and reading all of these terrifying papers. And I really feel like one of those biggest things that I find is such a hard bridge to cross in these sorts of situations, think global, act local. I mean, it's such a great catchphrase, but it is actually a very difficult bridge to cross. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing that's kind of uh, not accounted for in areas like this is, is the level of environmentalism that these people display in their own daily lives. Uh, there's a very active recycling culture here. And in places like where we live and in Columbiana County, um, you don't have curbside pickup of recycling. You have to load everything in your car. Uh, or truck, take it to a recycling center, dump it in the recycling center. Sometimes those bins are full, so it's a hassle to dump it. And, you know, it's, a, it, it's, it's something that requires a conscious effort, but people do it. And those, those, act, those places are widely used and supported by the community and seen as very valuable activity to engage in. Uh, there's also a very out active outdoors culture in these uh, parts of the world, and people recognize the the value of preserving that resource. So you know, it's not like I mean, the image that these people are, have no environmental consciousness and aren't thinking in terms of environmental issues uh, really isn't accurate in places like this. Uh, the environmental consciousness just plays itself out in certain ways, and again, they are very conscious of the environment they are very protective of it they will take care of people who don't take care of the environment uh you know by dumping or illegally burning or you know things like that because they recognize the value of these resources at the scale in which they live i think another thing about this part of the world is uh, well while deforestation is an issue at the global scale much of this part of the world has been reforested and people value those forests and there's a very active state forest system in ohio and pennsylvania that preserves and maintains those forests and, the, and expands those forests and they are um the way they are used and uh you know is very closely regulated uh so so actually you can look at maps of uh forest extent in ohio and pennsylvania you can see it growing uh, over time, where at one point it was entirely cleared out for agriculture and mining, and now um, that land has uh, naturally regenerated a very uh, healthy forest supply. You know, it's complicated. I mean, we just can't take, you know, just have a very simple one-sided view of it because there's so many things that, are, that interact uh, at different geographic scales. Oh, I'm right there with you. It's like there's there's so many facets, like, and none of it is black and white. It's all like dichotomies, we've got to watch out for those dichotomies. Anything where we're relying too much on a dichotomy, for example, urban and rural, man and nature, developed, undeveloped, if we're living in those dichotomies too much, I completely agree that it misses all the nuance. 
of the actual situation because these are complicated situations. And, you know, even the dichotomy of global and local, what you told us earlier about uh, the makeup of the economy in Columbiana County, it is a local place that has been very impacted by global processes, whether it's wanted to be or not. These dichotomies really hurt our ability to get at the heart of the issues. Uh, there's, there's different approaches, I think, uh, to these kinds of issues. I mean, there's the, uh, um, uh, one of your uh, guests talked about academic imperialism uh, at one point, and that's kind of a top-down. We want to manage uh, everything from the top and create a uh, kind of a, a, a standard, one-size-fits-all, either national or global approach to these problems. And then at the other, uh, the other approach is uh, to work from the bottom up and either try to persuade people that doing certain things is in their own best interest, like what happened with recycling. It's hard to imagine recycling didn't exist uh, 30, 40 years ago at all. And now it's this very active culture that people chose to do on their own. No one told them to do it. They just chose to do it because they thought it was important. And then hopefully those changes will uh, work their way up from these uh, local geographic scales and then become the national solution as a result of these individual local solutions being applied. So where do those two approaches meet? You know, how do you, how do you reconcile those two approaches? Do you think Columbiana County is a place where there's the potential for them to meet? I think it's a county where these things are playing out and you can't predict necessarily what's going to happen. Uh, you have local interests and then you have uh, national and global concerns and how it will play out depends on where the balance between those is met. But it certainly is a place where all of these things are happening and uh, it's a place where all these things are focused. So I don't know the answer as to what will happen in the future. I think no one does, but it's certainly an interesting place to see it all play out as we move forward. One of the uh, writers uh, and commentators that has influenced my thinking on this is uh, a man named Chris Arnod, and uh, he developed a uh, dichotomy called front row, back row. And there's uh, parallelism really between the front row and placeless and the back row and placed. You know, the front row are educated, placeless, uh, their values are tied to concepts and they tend to be in control. You know, they're the ones that make the policies and run the corporations and are the elite in governments and the elite in higher educational institutions. The back row tend to be people who are not as educated. You might say that they're sort of the kind of part of the working class in that sense, uh, but they're very much tied to community and their values come from things that are focused in their community, whether it's a high school, whether it's religion, their church, community organizations, and they are very much tied to the places in which they live. So uh, if you look at the relationship between front row, back row, and extractive activities, the front row looks at extractive activities from the perspective of being placeless. And so an issue like climate change or the consequences of extractiveness at the global scale is very much a front row issue. Uh, the back row looks at extractive activities that they benefit their community by providing jobs and enabling their place to either recover or grow or be a better place for their children uh, to live and not move away from and, and in a sense sustain their place and uh, uh, develop their place. So 
you know, that way of looking at this issue of extractivism, I think, is very helpful in understanding how people think uh, about uh, the costs and benefits of extractivism. In the show notes, we'll be linking to a longer writing piece that Chris Arnaud has put together that expands on this idea that we've touched on of the front row and the back row. But I just want to make sure, just in case anybody's not reading that, uh, the reason why we're saying front row and back row is because he uh, makes the metaphor of a classroom. And so uh, when he says front row, he means the students who sit in the front row who are tied to grades and achievements and they're paying attention and trying to get ahead and then the students who would maybe sit in the back row. And within that metaphor that he made, there is not any particular value judgment as to whether the front row or the back row is better, but just pointing out the reality that they are different ways of approaching interaction with life. Tom, I think we're going to have to wrap soon. It's, uh, it's, it's getting toward dinner time here. Okay. Uh, no, I've really enjoyed this discussion and I, and I hope uh, you and your listeners uh, will find it uh, valuable. Uh, I think the, the main point that uh, I think is important from all of this uh, as it applies to extractivism specifically, since that's the topic of this podcast, is uh, to understand the role of place and to try to understand why people think the way they do and have the perspective that they do. And really, uh, I think if a person does that, maybe that provides a key to persuading them to modify their behavior in some way and in order to advance these uh, uh, broader agendas. But uh, if, if you approach them as though uh, somehow that they are misguided or wrong or don't see the big picture, uh, you're never going to persuade them. They do see a big picture. It's just a different big picture uh, based on different values than uh, other people may see based on their values and their experience. So that's one concept that I've really uh, become important to me and in influencing how I teach and what I teach and the perspective I try to give to my students. And I think that's an important concept to keep in mind is, as people have these discussions. Your question. Yeah, no question. question. I mean, Do the question. <laughs> so yeah, I guess, um, of course, you know, the final question we always ask in terms of what can people do? Uh, how, like, how can people engage? How can they learn more? How can they be active in this? I'll go back to Chris Arnott. And uh, he's, one of the things he says is, uh, you know, people in the Acela Corridor, which is the area from Boston to New York, don't need to necessarily go outside of the Acela Corridor to understand back these types of places. They just need to get off the Acela. And so one thing that people can do is to get out of their geographic bubbles and see these places and, you know, if not necessarily talk to these people, but interact with these places in ways that they understand how they work and get a sense of why people uh, live the lives that they do. And, and, you know, you can make a case that goes both ways, you know, if people understand each other's places by interacting with different places, they understand each other and be able to achieve some sort of uh, uh, understanding of how we think and how maybe we can solve problems together. Wonderful. And I know we've made reference in the conversation uh, to some pre-reading you gave us, Always the Teacher. We'll be linking to those down in the show notes, but would you like to share with our listeners a little bit about 
why that particular set of links is presented to them. Okay, very good. Well, I think what holds those links together is the, the emphasis on place. The things that I've sent to you tended to be uh, local newspaper articles, local videos focused on a local area, many of them in Columbiana County, but some other parts of Ohio. But they represent the view from those places and the view from those people about these issues. And the, the, quite a few of them were you know, these extractive-based issues. And one of them, for example, talked about the... Uh, the importance of the coal mine to the community and what it meant to him and uh, what it meant to his family and why he wanted to keep it keep it going because of its link to his life and the link to his family's uh, quality of life. They all kind of provided a, a perspective of those people. That's why they're important and why they were connected together. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for collecting that group of um, articles and also some videos for our listeners to get to not only see some of this perspective on this place-basedness, but also to get a little peek into the place of Columbiana County and Ohio. Tom, thank you so much for joining us. It's been absolutely fun, fantastic, enlightening. Uh, I mean, honestly, I feel like we could go on for ages about this. There are so many different avenues, and I really appreciate this insight and, and overview uh, that you've given us. Absolutely. And I think that this particular episode complements some of the other episodes that we've had in that this is a different side of looking at extractivism and a different view of what extractivism can mean in a particular community. And so I think that it's in this effort of the Exalt Initiative to look at extractivism and alternatives from all sides. I really appreciate that you've given us another view. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you again to Professor Tom Moraff for calling in and joining us. Please join us next month when we'll be speaking with University of Helsinki Development Studies researcher Maya Lassila. We'll be talking about Arctic extractivism and alternatives, the modern nature-human divide, and creative engagements. This is socially isolating Christopher Shagnon from his apartment. On behalf of socially isolating Sophia Hagelani-Albov, in these exceptional times, we hope that everybody is staying safe is acting responsibly towards themselves and the community around them, and is taking good care of their mental health as well as their physical health. Be safe, and catch you next time.